Uh, turn to John chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 66 through 71. Uh, always reminded every time we get back into the gospel of John why it's probably my favorite gospel. Uh, really unique text this morning. I think it's very applicable. It's going to speak to us. That is at least my prayer. So turn there. I'm going to read it. And uh, then I'm going to hopefully try and explain it and apply it to your current life situation a little bit. So John chapter 6, let me start in verse 66. This is Jesus, uh, and he's with a lot of people, and they start kind of trailing off, and then he's with his disciples. And so it tells us in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simeon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Father, would you help us to understand what these sentences mean? Lord, we're not here to practice religion. Um, We're here to uncover the very heart of God. And you've given us this book. You've given us your words. You ultimately gave us your son to speak. And so, Lord, will you please allow us to connect dots and make sense of what we've just read. And in a supernatural sense, apply it to our hearts. We beg of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so everyone hates a bandwagon fan, right? Um, there's, I've seen a lot more uh, Mississippi football team decals floating around our area these last few weeks. And, you know, you get a lot of noise on the Twitter and this and that. Oh, you're a bandwagon fan because you're doing, the team's doing well right now. Uh, the Miami Heat, like five minutes after LeBron announced that he was leaving, I think within five minutes, the, the Miami Heat Twitter account lost like 500,000 followers. Within five minutes of, yeah, I'm out of here, 500,000 people clicked, unfollow, we're done. But everyone hates a bandwagon fan because it's like, oh, but you only want the good. You don't want the whole package of a team. You know, you, you only want the good. Well, one of the running themes throughout John's gospel thus far has been looking at a lot of bandwagon fans of Jesus. And we have another wave in our text this morning that has just heard from him and clicked unfollow. Why? Well, our text, what I just read, says that a lot of people left after this. Well, what's the after this? That's what it says in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked away. So what is the after this that made them go, uh, yeah, no thanks, we're out of here. Well, basically, Jesus had just obliterated this crowd's sense of of control and ultimately pride by teaching the fundamental truths of the gospel. He uh, tells them of their great need. It's like, you might look like you have it all together, but you are born incredibly needy, broken, uh, distorted, twisted. He tells them that. That's already probably a little, wait a minute. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I do or haven't done? So he tells them that. Then he tells them, 
I mean, he goes on just to offend them more by saying, um, the only way that that need can be met is through me. No other way. There's no other man that can do it. There's no other thing that can do it. The only way your need, your problem can be solved is through absolute abandonment of you and trusting only in me. So that raises probably a little bit of offense there. And then, I mean, just nail in the coffin. This is the kicker. He very clearly taught God's sovereignty and salvation. He's teaching election and it ticks people off. I mean, if you go back and I actually am going to go back, but the way I'm ordering it, you'll see it'll make sense later. He talks about, hey, you can't, only people who take interest in me at all are those who the father has drawn and those who the father has given me. Those he's given me, I will keep. So he's telling them, hey, you can't just go, I want to turn over a new leaf. Jesus, you seem like a good idea. The only way that your eyes will be opened and that your heart will be made new is if the Father draws you. That was the nail in the coffin. People are going, are you kidding me? Well, that's offensive. That's offensive in many ways because of the way that that we view ourselves and the way that man is born viewing himself. It was hard. It was a call for, for all of them. And so many walked away. And Jesus sees the masses of people walking away and he turns to the 12 whom he chose, you know, to, to kind of stick close with him. He, he sees, I mean, thousands of people going, unfollow, I'm out of here. Don't want anything to do with that. And he turns to the 12 and he says, do you want to hop off the bandwagon too? I mean, now's a good chance. I mean, a lot of people, this is it's a hard teaching, what I'm saying. It's confusing. You're probably wrestling with it. You're struggling. If you want to walk away, now's the time to do it. Do you want to go too? Why would Jesus ask that? I mean, we know that he can read hearts and minds, right? So you, you would think that he would know that maybe they were committed, at least 11 of them, you know, to sticking around. Why would he ask that out loud, verbally? Why would he engage his true disciples with that kind of a question? Well, it's a test. And it's meant to strengthen his true disciples' faith and affirm their decision to abandon everything for him. And so the main point of our passage is what Jesus, I I really believe, is asking you this morning. Providentially, thousands of years ago, as this scene actually took place, there's no doubt in my mind that in the providence and sovereignty of God, he knew that way down, you know, the halls of time, 150 people would be sitting in this suburb listening to his words that were recorded, and he would ask you that very question. Here's the question. Is there a better option than following Jesus? In essence, that is what he's asking the disciples. As he sees thousands of people walking away, turning away from a hard teaching, he is in essence going, if, if there's better out there, you might want to go find it. Do you think there's better? Do you want to go too? They have obviously done some, uh, some calculating and have seen, you know what? Jesus just said some weird stuff. He said that ultimately it's up to God, the father whom he chooses. Uh, he said that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be, okay, yeah, I'm out of here. 
People had calculated that this was a hard teaching. It was strange. It was weird. We're out. And so Jesus ultimately is asking this question. If there's a better option, maybe go investigate it. Is there a better option? So I'm going to examine that question in three parts. I want to look at the question that Jesus asks. I want to look at the response that Peter gives. And then I want to look at the gospel that Jesus teaches. The question, the response, and the gospel. First to the question, um, Jesus doesn't seem to be phased by the masses that are hopping off the bandwagon. It doesn't seem to worry him. It doesn't seem to concern him. He's not uh, dialing up his PR guy going, I, I, I said the wrong thing. Oh, oh gosh, people are leaving. I didn't mean to do that. I needed a huge following to get this Christianity thing off the ground, but people are bailing. What did I do? Doesn't seem to be surprising him. Doesn't seem to be worrying him at all. And he certainly doesn't seem to be dumbing down the demands of his message to keep the crowd from pulling out. You know, it's funny, like when I'm at the house playing games with the girls, uh, whether it's you know, something athletic, soccer, or like a mind game or something. If it's too hard, like they'll lose interest, you know, pretty quickly. I mean, eh, whatever, we're out of here. You, so I have to kind of like dumb it down. You know, I have to kind of act like I'm not good at soccer because we all know I'm awesome. But, you know, you have to, oh, I missed it. Oh, you got the goal. Ah. Or, you know, you're playing a game. Can you guess which one? You have to, oh, I got it wrong. You'll get it right. You know, you have to kind of dumb it down so that little kids will kind of stay engaged. Because if it's too hard, they're like, yeah, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to lose. And Jesus doesn't do that. He's not like, oh, maybe my sermon is too long. It's too hard. It's too boring. I need to, I need to meet them where they're at a little bit more. I need to kind of smooth things over because they're bailing. Looks like I'm losing them. Jesus wasn't playing that game. F.F. Bruce says this, what they wanted, he would not give. And what he offered, they would not receive. And uh, it's amazing to me that after, you know, so many years of ministry, that this is exactly what happens when someone even in this building calls you to a response. You don't want what's offered many times. And only in God's sovereignty can he awaken dead hearts and give life to to eyes and ears. Jesus, his question to the crowd and then to his disciples was sincere And it was aimed at making them evaluate their hearts and ultimately evaluate their lives. Hey, if you're just kind of half in this thing, you might want to reconsider because that's what thousands of people just did when I'm not who they turned out, who, who they thought I was. That's not who I'm turning out to be. You might want to evaluate. You see, Jesus was not concerned with masses of half-hearted religious people. He didn't need that. He didn't want that. Jesus knew that a small little nucleus of of all-in people would produce much greater results and be much more effective than 30,000 people in the compact center in Houston, Texas on a Sunday morning. 
He wasn't really all that concerned with the half-hearted, like, uh, yeah, I'd like to maybe be associated with you, Jesus, because you do some stuff. He was concerned with those who were all in and knew that even a small nucleus empowered by the Holy Spirit would be much more powerful, much more effective than having thousands and thousands and thousands of people who kind of knew him, but not really. His question here reminds me of Jesus' teaching uh, about a narrow and a wide road. Do you remember that from Matthew 7? This is a principle. You want to tuck away and you want to um, be able to draw from to encourage you when you feel alone. You know, maybe right now, maybe in the high school context, you feel very surrounded by uh, a strong Christian community and you feel encouraged by that and held accountable by that. But maybe you're going to enter a season of life next or next or next or at some point where you just feel really isolated. And you're like, am I nuts? Am I nuts for believing this book? Am I nuts for believing Jesus? Am I nuts for trying to line up my life according to what he says is life? I want you to remember this. Matthew seven fourteen. Jesus is teaching. And he says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He's going... There's a wide road out there. There's a wide gate out there. And it's relatively easy. You just have to kind of look like everyone else. And there's a lot of space on it. You can kind of zig over there, zag over there. You're just kind of fine. Kind of stay in the middle of it. There's a ton of people. Seems pretty comfortable. You would never question on that road, am I lost? You're like, okay, there's tons of people. All right, I'm good. And then there's a narrow gate there's a, that leads to this very narrow road that Jesus himself unapologetically says is hard. I mean, let that sink in. Maybe some of you are in a season right now where just being a Christian is hard. It's tough. Hey, be encouraged. Jesus said you're on the right road. But it's small. And there's not that many people on it. You know, that's encouraging to me for so many different reasons, but, but get the application here. Don't get too comfy here. The, the, the road that's really wide and big, and there's a lot of people on it. I know you're tempted at times to go, okay, whew, that, that's where I feel more at home. Don't get comfortable there. And listen, also don't expect the masses to be rooting on your team. Don't expect for our culture to be affirming the life that you're trying to live. You know, look at this, just the size of this youth group alone. You know, and if you were to take, you know, do the math and look at the percentage of what 150 to 200 people is in the midst of a thousands and thousands of people in, in our high school culture, you know, around here, you would say that's pretty minuscule. But I look and I go, this youth group alone, if you caught the, the vision of this great commission and this all inness of the gospel, literally, I mean, I, not, this is not hyperbole or exaggeration, literally could change this culture, could change the high school culture. So be affirmed. Don't expect the masses to be around going, yes, we champion what you say. We're going to retweet what you say. Don't expect that because Jesus himself very clearly taught. There's a narrow gate and a narrow road. That's the right one, but it's hard and only a few people are on it. All right, so that's the question. Jesus wants to test. He wants people to, to go, man, do, do I want to leave? You know, do we really know you? Do we really trust you? 
Next, we get to the response. And Peter, I mean, Peter, he's just a trip. He's always the first to speak. He kind of reminds me of a clumsy golden retriever in the house who's, you know, always banging into the refrigerator and, and this and that. But his, his honest response, it's just borderline genius. Do you want to leave? Jesus, you know, I mean, do, you, do you want to leave? And Peter's kind of like, huh, do we want to leave? And, and go where? You have the words of life. What, what, what else do we do? We go back to being a fisherman. We go back to, you know, uh, moralism. We go back to paganism. We go back to some philosopher. What, what do you mean do we want to leave? There's nowhere else to go. There's no better option. Peter's going, we've seen you. We've walked with you. You are the bread of life. We believe it. We've experienced it. And this is what I find so encouraging. You know, we often look at people in the Bible and we, we disconnect them from being real humans who struggle and are right in the middle of their sanctification just like we are. And we go, Peter, uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's Peter. He can do no wrong. I'm, I'm never, I know that Peter had to struggle through this. He had to have heard what Jesus was teaching and go, that sounds impossible or that sounds hard or I don't want to do that. So our text doesn't tell us that, that he didn't struggle, that there wasn't some tension there. And yet it recognizes that there is no better option than sticking close to the Savior. And that's just encouraging to me because, you know, it's okay to struggle sometimes with, with what this book says. As you're reading it, as it's reading you, and it's, you know, cutting away things in your life that's not comfortable, it's okay to struggle with certain things in this book. It's okay to struggle with things that Jesus said. That's okay. I mean, much of the Christian life is working through tensions and, 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 and asking God to grant us the power and the desire to do things that we don't want to do or the things that we can't feel. It's a lot of the Christian life. So it's okay to struggle through that. And I don't doubt that Peter did. And yet his resolve is clear. Why? Because he had been with Jesus. That's all I know to tell you. He knew, he knew him. He had a relationship with him. Uh, how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Maybe you've had to for school. Maybe you're a nerd and you have. You've got to read it. Please, before you die. Please read it before you die. It's just a classic work of, of, of the Christian faith. And it's un believable. There's a part, you know, John Bunyan wrote it and, and, he's, and it's just a illustration of the whole Christian life. And Christian is the main character. And it just follows the story of a, a Christian, a believer. His name's Christian. And there's a part where Christian, he comes face to face with the devil in the road, on the, on the journey of life, you know, on the road of life, he comes face to face with the enemy. And he toys with turning back and just going, you know what, this is too hard. I want to avoid the conflict. I want to avoid the tension. I want to avoid the struggle. I, I, I want to turn back and I'm going to head out of here. And he really legitimately toys with that idea. And, and I would ask you, if you were honest, you would probably tell me you've done the same. It's too tough. I mean, gosh, I'm always battling these temptations and temptations. Everyone else out there in class seems to just do their life and not worry. I'm always going, oh my gosh, am I this, am I that? So he comes face to face with the devil in the road. And he's like, I think I want to turn around. But then he remembers he has nothing to cover his back. He has um, 
a shield, he has a breastplate, he has a helmet, he has a sword, but nothing for his back. The minute he turns around, the enemy would, would have him. The minute he turns around to leave, the enemy could just, boom, spear, there you go. And so as tempted as he was to jump ship, retreat was just not an option. Through grace, he, kept, he persevered to keep fighting, even though it was tough. Guys, I want you to remember that when you're tempted to retreat. When you're tempted to retreat, and dear friend, listen, you will be tempted to retreat. You know, as, as, as we were discussing yesterday at the Theological Biscuit, life catches up to everybody. The brokenness of this world gets everybody at some point. You'll be tempted to retreat. But what do you have covering your back? Nothing. In grace, fight to persevere. In grace, fight to keep going. Knowing that that armor cannot be penetrated, even as hard as the struggle is. You know, the other thing about Peter's response that I find so compelling is that he gives us a, a real working definition of what it means to come to faith, like real faith in Christ. Here's what he says. Jesus is basically going, is there a better option? Do you really believe that I'm the bread of life? And in essence, Peter says this. He goes, we have believed and have come to know. Now, why is that word order important? Here's why it's important. Do you, do you get this? This is the total opposite of, of what the world says that we need to arrive at faith. The world says, show me. I mean, I want to see with my eyes. I got to see proof. Then I'll believe. God, if you drop down from heaven and, and land right in the cafeteria and you start handing out some tracts, or you do a big speech, okay, then I'll believe. That's what I need. I need that kind of evidence. And the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that we first believe God's words for what they are. We believe that they are coming from a creating, sovereign, holy God, and then we gain understanding. You know, that's so encouraging because a lot of you feel very weak uh, when it comes to defending your faith because you're going, I don't know anything about creationism versus evolution. Uh, they're going to nail me. I don't know anything about how we got the canon, which you, you should now know a little bit more if you were here yesterday. But I don't know. They're going to nail. We don't, we can't change hearts by giving evidence. The Bible says, no, you believe God's words for what they are. And then you come to an understanding. Hebrews chapter um, 11, verse three says, by faith, we understand. That's exactly what we were talking about yesterday morning. You know, James Montgomery Boyce, he says this, the secret to arriving at a point of certainty in spiritual things is that we must believe what God tells us. Then believing, we will find knowledge following. Do you get that? When we trust that God, some of this stuff is hard. Some of the stuff that you're telling me is confusing and I'm struggling through it. But you know what? There's also something in me. There's this Holy Spirit in me 
that really is affirming that these are your words. And you chose for men to write them down thousands of years ago, but still they're living and they're active. And something in me, this Holy Spirit in me, is convinced that this really is you speaking. And when that takes place, then knowledge comes. Then understanding follows. You see, the world flips it. Peter knew Jesus. He had walked and talked with him and seen him for who he was. His faith was real. It was reasonable. It wasn't existential and disconnected and detached and blind. So when it came time for his faith to be tested, it was easy for him to know that there was no other legitimate option than to stick with his Savior. And he even in this context, still had a ton to learn about Jesus that we now can look back and know. It was still kind of foggy who Jesus was and what he was coming to do. And we now know that. Last thing, and then we're done, the gospel. This is where I find the gospel, and it's very interesting. It's in Jesus's response to Peter. So Peter gives a good response. You've got the words of eternal life. Um, We've believed and have come to know that you're the holy one. You're the set apart one of God. And Jesus answered, look at his response in verse 70. Did I not choose you, the 12? Wait, huh? Like you would have thought that his response would have been, oh, finally, someone who gets it. Good boy, Pete. Good boy. That a boy. You got it. But why does he say, did I not choose you, the 12? Why does he say that? Well, I'd be willing to bet just knowing man there, there was some pride in Peter in his response. In the original language that this book was, was written, the we and we have believed that Peter's talking about was emphasized. So it wouldn't have been we have believed. It would have been we have believed. Kind of in a condescending way, like the rest, they're walking away. We are bosses. We aren't leaving. We have believed. We're not bandwagon fans. We're not like them. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, yeah, you you know why? It's not because you're a boss of a disciple. You're just so committed. It's because my father chose you before the foundation of the world and breathed life into you and grace is the only thing that's keeping you from walking away just like them. And that's the stumbling block of the gospel. Because we're modern Americans. We're gonna choose our destiny. We're gonna choose our path. We're gonna build up our lives how we want to build them up. We can do what we want. If we want a little bit of God, we get a little bit of God. If we want a lot of him, if we're kind of freaks, nerds, whatever, we'll get a lot of him. But I'm going to do, in essence, what I want to do. And Jesus is reminding them of this gospel that, oh, wait, wait a minute. We have believed. Do you know why? And so I look to you, and, and, and when you're tempted to look around a room or a school, or a field, or a, you know, kitchen, or, or wherever you're at, you go, man, I'm so glad I'm not like them. I am so glad that somehow I got it together, and I'm not like them. 
Jesus would have a word for you. You know, if there is something in you that desires holy things, you believe this is God's word, you want to apply it to your life, it's of nothing that you have done. And that's the pride buster of the gospel. You know, Jesus, by saying that, by his response to Peter's response being, did I not choose you? is putting this big fat exclamation point on God's sovereignty in a chapter that's just oozing with it. You know, Jesus could easily reflect back a few sentences up and go, wait, did you not hear what I just said? No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Wait, did you not hear that? You're only interested in me and you're only sticking around because of a sovereign act of God's grace in your life, Peter. So what does Jesus' response do for those of us who are, who are with Peter? We're on Peter's team or we're going, no, I, I really want that. I don't think there is a better option out there. I, I've tried some stuff and it hasn't cracked up. I really don't think there is a better option. Well, what does Jesus' response do for us? Here's what it should do. It should humble us deeply. It should humble us deeply. It should cause much worship in our hearts and ultimately in our lives. Because if you've looked at what's out there, friend, and some of you, you're still in the calculating phase, or maybe you're not even there yet. Some of you are still going, hmm, what do I want my life to look like? Huh, who do I want to worship? Is it me? Uh, is it him? Which is worth it? Which is better? Some of you are in that phase right now, but, but for those of you who've you've, you, you've done those calculations and you've looked and you've seen, okay, there is no better option. And you've truly been convinced that, you know, where, where else would I go? He's offering life, real life, eternal life. Any other option is just kind of this zombie life that ultimately leads to, to death. If you've been convinced of that, listen to me. It's not because you had the right parents. It's not because you had the right school. It's not because you had the right church. It's not because you had the right uh, theological perspective that someone else didn't. It's not because you had the best record. Well, I never did that. I don't do that. It's not because of any circumstantial thing at all. It is only because of God's sovereign electing grace that has visited you simply out of an act of mercy. That is what Jesus' response to Peter was implying. Don't get cocky. You understand that you would have been one of them walking away, walking into eternal destruction had I not just out of an act of mercy called you. Let me close with this. Where else would you go? I mean, I don't know if you've ever evaluated. I don't know if you've ever really asked yourself that question. You know what? This Christianity, this church thing, it's, I don't know, it's kind of, kind of old to me now. I'm 15, 16, 17, 18. I, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of close-minded, you know. This is just, I've been in this little bubble, you know. I'm born in this suburb. I go to this school. I'm just kind of, you know, maybe, maybe there is something I've just missed. Life is small for me. My world is too small. Maybe there's something out there. I don't know if you've ever considered, where, where else would you go? I mean, what else would make up your life? Where else would you go? Let's think, I mean, is it friends? 
I mean, do you, do you think that they ultimately could do it? Your friend group that you have such a blast with and, oh, they just mean the world to me without them. I mean, could they save you? I mean, do you, do you really trust that girl or, or that guy enough that they, they can do it? Is it your abilities, your gifts? I'm really smart. I'm really good at throwing a ball. I'm, I'm really attractive. I'm really articulate. I'm smart. I mean, ultimately, you think that'll do it? I mean, can that save you? Maybe it's just the life in which you call the shots. You don't answer to anyone except yourself. Maybe that is where you find salvation. You'll build up your kingdom. You'll get followers. You'll do what you want to do when you want to do it. Maybe it's another religion. Maybe it's another world religion. Maybe it's some philosopher out there that you'll think maybe salvation is there. One that's less, you know, weird. Something out there that's less, I don't know, demanding. And guys, I would reason with you this morning. I would reason with you and confidently tell you that there is no other option. Many in this room will try, just as the crowds in our text did, as they walked away from Jesus only to find the narrow road, while it might seem hard, it's the only one that leads to life. So imagine this scene. Some of you, you don't have great imaginations. Try really hard right now. Imagine that you're with Jesus and imagine that you turn and you just see literally football stadium full of people walking away because they're going, oh, it's a blowout game. <laughs> We're out of here. And he turns to you, genuinely asks, do you want to go too? What do you say? Do you know him well enough to say, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would I go? I'm staying. Only you and the Holy Spirit can answer that question. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Had you not chosen to speak, to communicate, to talk to us, we would absolutely be lost in the most frightening sense of that word, lost. But you did not remain silent. You spoke to us through your prophets and people wrote those things down. You spoke to us through your apostles and people wrote that stuff down. You spoke to us ultimately through the arrival of your son, Jesus, and you continue to speak to us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you. Lord, will you press in the truths of this passage into our hearts and, and may that overflow into our lives. May, may our friends, may our coworkers, may our teammates, may our parents, may our brothers, our sisters, our cousins, Lord, teachers, may everyone around us look and see that wow, they really are convinced that there's no better option. I, I want to hear about that. Lord, press these things into our lives and in doing so, may we grow in our faith of you and may you affirm, Lord, not our grand 
coming to you because we decided this would be the best path, but Lord, may we be affirmed in your calling, your electing of us. And may we be blown away at the grace, the mercy that would choose any, Lord. Thank you for your word. Without your Holy Spirit, we will not understand it. Press it in. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.